Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello and welcome back to Spooky Psych. Hello. You might hear Milo meowing in the background. We have switched locations. We have switched locations. So now instead of Gotham the dog in the background, we have Milo the cat. For all of our cat folks out there, you might like that. Yeah. It may give you a murderino feel, similar to Elvis. Exactly. Similar to Elvis, although just to specify, he's not either of our cat. No. He's an office cat. He is the office cat. Little shop kitty. Yeah. So yeah, so today we are talking about something that we think is interesting. Yeah, it's a bit different than I think our normal topics. Yep. But good. But good. Very good. Very interessante. So without further ado. Megan, what are we talking about today? Today we are going to be talking about the psychology behind various aspects of the prison system. So to clarify, we are talking about the prison system in the United States of America. I think most specifically in Illinois, but some other stuff as well. (laughs) And uh, our prison system is very, very different and problematic, which I will be discussing at length. Absolutely. And, you know, we're not trying to get, like, political about anything. We're just getting into the facts and how it affects... Um, the psyche and the psychology behind it mm-hmm. um, with various different things. Um, so also at the top, we wanted to mention um, that after we drop this episode, we are going to take a little bit of a hiatus. We will be indeed. Due to Megan's getting married. Yes, I'm getting married in just a few weeks and Lauren is a bridesmaid. And I am. We've just got got some shit to do we have a lot to do and at the same time like we're not a podcast that records a bunch of episodes and then schedules them out i'd love to be that podcast i think that maybe one day we will be but as of right now we're both juggling jobs and lives and lots of other stuff so chronic illnesses chronic illnesses (laughs) that's a big one and so we kind of just record like a week in advance. Yep. And then edit it that week and then try to get it up by Friday, which if you can tell by my very inconsistent upload times is not always the smoothest process. So we kind of talked about it and just, there's no way guys, I'm sorry, we love you, but like we, I do not have the time to research anything. Well, and that's the thing too, is that we genuinely do research all these topics and look at articles and mm-hmm. you know because we want to come at you with the newest information um but it doesn't really allow us time to do that and we don't want to just show up with like a half ass yeah. thing i mean how long would you say it takes you to like to research, research and put stuff in Ooh. um for this one i would say it took me like two and a half to three hours yeah i'm usually about the same sometime longer if i watch like a movie or a documentary yeah, or like or a something. ted talk yeah yeah so i think between that so that's like six hours right there recording takes about two editing takes about twice as long as the episode at least yeah. so i mean we're talking like 10 to 15 hours 
of work per episode here, and we just don't have the time. Although we love it. And if you want to sponsor us, that will help us immensely. (laughs) Definitely. We have a Patreon. We have a couple patrons, and they are all lovely. We have a new one. We have a new one. Um, Lauren, tell us about our new patron. Our new patron is Julian Oliva, and he is my cousin on my Ecuadorian side. I've only Mm. met him once, so... He's got that Latin spice. That Latin we were heat. About <laughs> on the Ecuadorian side. That's right. I apologize if that comment makes you very uncomfortable, but if you roll back, we know. If he is my family, he will jokes. enjoy it. He'll find it funny. So thank you. Yeah, that was very sweet. Very unexpected and very sweet. Yeah, I think one of the cool things, and, you know, I, I think transparency is important in podcasting, is that with our patrons, and their lovely donations, we are getting close to not going into debt every month for this podcast. We do have to pay to upload. Yeah. So we're getting really, really close again. Not saying that to guilt everyone, just full transparency. Like we are putting money into this and time into this and it is helpful to have people help us Mm -hmm. out so that way we can... And the more downloads you guys give us, because like our downloads have been awesome um and the ratings have been awesome so the more you guys do that what that opens up for us is chance chances just to kind of um get different sponsors Mm -hmm. where we can you know be paid to podcast which is like the dream it is the dream we are actively looking for sponsorship opportunities right now if you have a business and would like to sponsor us let us know we'll talk we'll do it we'll talk well Unless it's really weird. Really depends on what the business is. <laughs> if it's something terrible, we will not sponsor. We will right. not be a sponsor. But for the most part, we are looking for that. So we're looking at as many opportunities as we can come up with to make this podcast something that we can sustainably do for a long time. Right. Exactly. And I think we also talked about in a... Starting up in the spring and the summer, we'll hopefully be bringing some live shows yeah, back. Bringing it back, baby. To the Chicago suburbs area. St. Charles. St. Charles, Geneva, Maybe Batavia. Who knows what the future holds. Yeah, I mean, let us know, you guys, if you would prefer us to do it in... Um, I mean, a couple of our hotspots are Cafe and Bar in Geneva, and obviously Ghoulish Mortals is the OG and super fun to do there. Um, let us know which one you guys prefer, because obviously we know Ghoulish Mortals is more on brand. It's very on brand. And then uh, Cafe and Bar is right next to the train station. And so. they sell alcohol, which I think was a popular... That was a hit. That was a hit. Some people got charcuterie boards, which is exciting. It, it is. So I think there's pros and cons to each. And, you know, if you are a business owner and you would like us to come to you. We can do that. Let us know. We'll see if that's feasible for us. But we're really looking, you know, I know some people get annoyed with ads on the podcast and asks for Patreon. And we're not trying to be super annoying on no. this. But we do spend quite a lot of time. So we would like to make it work for us and work for you guys yeah it's the dream right there 
this is the dream. I mean, if we could become the next Karen in Georgia. I I mean, ideally. Or if they would at least ever listen to one of our episodes, I would, like, have a heart attack and die. See, I don't know if I want this to get as big as my favorite murder, because, like, as... I enjoy my privacy. (laughs) I enjoy my privacy, and also just, like, I, I mean, a tour would be great. If we could ever do that, but I feel like the constant international touring would be terrible yeah. for our respective illnesses, yeah. and we would be so tired. So not good for blood clots in your legs. So you mean you're not supposed to fly all the time with nah. your blood clots? Nah. No. Well, you know, maybe road uh, trip. Maybe. Maybe a road trip. You know, that Midwest. Think, yeah, maybe. Tour. <laughs> Occasional touring and live shows, I think, is our jam, but obviously... Because we do love live shows. That's so much fun. But if we can just make some income with advertising, that would be pretty dope. Yeah, make it free. Make it free. Yeah. Um. Oh, and then just kind of back to the hiatus topic. So while we take a break for Megan's wedding and all that... um. We are going to open up the next episode to you guys in the sense that, okay, today we're talking about psychology and the prison system. Next time, what we're doing is we are going to be interviewing folks who have worked in the prison system, and we are going to ask them questions that you guys specifically ask. So as you listen to this episode, think about questions that you have that we can ask them um because they've been through it they they know a lot of things that we're probably not even thinking of so Mm -hmm. be sure to think about those yeah definitely and like i said we are taking a break so our next episode will come up on april 3rd so just a month we're just taking march off and then we will be back to you in april don't worry guys we love you we're not going anywhere we just need to be people yeah. For a second. <laughs> we just need to be people for a little bit. So. All right. Let's let's get into it. Okay. All right. So, my dearly beloved Nick, um, a.k.a. my husband. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if, like, you've said his name enough that people would know. That. I was like, you're just going to leave it to my dearly beloved My dearly beloved. Nick. We're gathered here today. We're gathered here today to learn what Nick told us. Um, so I thought what would be kind of fun is to learn about the process of like what happens when you are brought into prison. So I asked my husband, Nick, Nick is my husband and (laughs) just to clarify, clarify, I was wondering, Nick is Lauren's husband. We are married legally, legally. Yeah. Um, so he used to work in the prison system. He actually used to be a mental health assessor for the St. Charles Youth Penitentiary. Um, So in his experience, he obviously, you know, had his actual experiences in St. Charles, but then also um, he went to a lot of different trainings. Um, I remember he went to one in Pontiac, Illinois, and I think that's a maximum or semi-maximum security prison, um, and learned a lot there. So like, He's, he's pretty knowledgeable, um, and we he might be one of the people we interview. I don't know. Ooh. We will see. Anyway, so I was asking him about the process, because I think that part is really interesting to people. Like, what the hell happens when you're brought into prison? So what he told me was, uh, typically what happens is you either have a cop car bring somebody in, or a squad car, or 
a paddy wagon or a department of corrections vehicle if it's multiple people they are bringing in at once. So you for sure get there in a vehicle of some sort. Yep. You might just be individual or with a group. So it kind of depends. Then what happens is you are put into a holding cell or pen. um, And he basically explained this as a waiting room where you get locked inside. (laughs) Which I love. So just the worst waiting room you could be in. (laughs) Most anxiety-provoking waiting room. Then what happens is the intake officer will call you out either one at a time or in groups. Um, Then what happens is you will be given a prison ID. And what he explained is that the letters on the prison ID all mean something. So to the prison staff, um, there might be letters that basically um, let them know if like the prisoner has a history of attacking guards, things like that, just so they can be really aware of who they're dealing with. Then what happens is each individual person um, has an inventory taken of their physical appearance. So this includes tattoos, especially gang tattoos, scars, etc. They also keep an inventory of what you have on. So like the clothes you came in and stuff and they'll either keep it or they'll send it home for you. Then what happens is kind of, you know, the part that we hear about a lot where They take you into a shower, hose you down, and they have you do the whole squat and cough to ensure that you aren't smuggling anything in your rectum. Is that the same for female prisoners? Because you can also smuggle things in your vaginal canal, and I'm just not sure biologically if, like... I'm fairly sure. I don't know how you would check that, because... I mean, if you got a strong pelvic floor... Like, I don't know if squat and cough would expel something out of your vagina. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, wearing tampons would be very dangerous. That would be dangerous. Squat and cough. <laughs> this became a weapon. I have a source I can ask. Okay. I mean, it could um, be the same. I just am curious. I'm curious about that, too. That's an excellent question. Yeah. We'll have to write that down for our interview. Okay. Then what happens is a corrections counselor will meet with you, and they will explain the process, and they may go over specifics in your case. Things like that. And then what happens is you are assigned an intake unit. This could take a couple days to up to two weeks to make sure that you're a good fit before placement. So what Nick was saying is that this largely depends on your crime, especially if you have any sort of crime where you're a sex offender. Um, They may move you into more of a solitary situation or if you're extremely dangerous, they may move you to a very maximum security prison Mm -hmm. depending on that and i know in illinois at least um this is something that i was told by some of the detectives that i used to work with but a lot of sex offenders are housed together Mm -hmm. in specialized units to keep them safe from the general population they're not well liked no Particularly child sex offenders. Uh, A lot of prisoners don't like child molesters that much. Right. I can't remember what the percentage is, but it's like there's a huge percentage of the prison population that 
were victims of sexual assault. So therefore, mm-hmm. they have some feelings about it. I mean, I think most people have pretty strong feelings against molesting children. <laughs> I would hope so. I think that perhaps certain prisoners might be more likely to express those feelings violently. Sure. So, you know. You know. Makes sense. Yep. Uh, okay, so they get assigned an intake unit. And then what happens is they, once they are placed, they will go over a mental health evaluation while we, uh, while waiting to be placed in their intake unit. Um, and that's where they will meet a therapist or a substance abuse counselor. They might meet with, with a lawyer, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, does every prisoner get a therapist or is that different with the juvenile population? Or? I think... From what Nick told me with the juvenile population, I think they all get one. But I want to say with adults, it may be based on their mental health assessment, if it is Mm -hmm. necessary or not. Yeah, I think it's important and something that you will hear from me a little bit more later is um, the issue with the United States not being rehabilitated at all in their prison. Juvenile is more focused on rehabilitation than adult prison. And actually have like teachers there and things like that. So yeah, so then what happens is they are placed in either general population or they may be transferred. So again, what Nick was saying was based on space, so if there's actually beds available, uh, their history, if there's gang history, you don't want to put conflicting gang members in the same area, and how egregious the crime was. And then if they are placed in general population, what happens is essentially get a goodie bag. <laughs> I don't know if there's a better I, term for that. Um, yeah, I'm not. My mind is blanking. An Just reminds me of like bag, a, an essentials bag, maybe party favors. Party. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you get shower stuff in one of those sticky hands. There you go. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> to prison. Well, that would be funny if it was like a weird like Harry Potter twist where the sorting hat. <laughs> Gryffindor. I think they might like that better. That might be better. Yeah. Based on your history with the Bloods, you are in Ravenclaw. Anyway, so yeah, you get a goodie bag of showers. Um, and then what they do is they get their schedule of how they'll spend their time and court dates. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the process. I mean, obviously there's probably intricacies that I did not mention. Um, and if you have specific questions about that, definitely hit us up. We'll ask a pro next so we found this awesome article by ann edwards um she did a study about inmate adaptations and socialization in the prison and this is a article from the 70s but it is referenced a lot in the current literature so she really kind of started this research basically so she found that the three basic features um for prisoners are when it comes to their socialization and belonging while in prison are the shared similar belief systems patterned interaction and then the consciousness of kind so the idea of okay i'm aware that i belong in this group of people and really when she was doing her research she was looking how prisoners related to the staff and the outside world as well as each other 
So there are um, different, uh, basically, types. Jesus. Okay, so like Lauren said, lots of different types that they research. So there's the staff man, which is basically a prisoner that is protected by the staff. He's useful in some way, whatever that may be. But they don't necessarily like him, right? They might have some contempt for him. It's not like he's like their best friend or anything. But the prisoners totally hate this guy. Like mm-hmm. they are rejecting him and the staff is kind of protecting him. There's the reforming character who's really committed to turning his life around to the rehab part of prison that may or may not be present depending on where he's at. But he's kind of the reason that there is a treatment policy and is important to the staff, right? Because they're like, he... See, it works. It's basically kind of like the rehab golden child yes. in prison. It's the one who's actually doing well. So it's like, see, it does work, which we need to have more rehabilitation focus in prisons. And so this guy is kind of like the, hey, see, look how great he's doing. Some people probably don't like him, but not everyone hates him. Not all the prisoners hate him. Uh, There's the opportunist who, um, so the opportunist kind of, his values temporarily come from the staff whose position he respects. So he'll just kind of take on different aspects of that, of the respected staff members and act that way, but mixes with the inmates to avoid trouble, so kind of talks to different people and can take on that role a little bit. There's the Lone Informer, which is a very dramatic title. (laughs) Uh, Usually has like a personality problem, might be a sex offender, so he's unpopular and isolated. So the other prisoners do not like this guy at all. So he's, you know, trying to get buddy-buddy up with the prison staff. Since he doesn't have that support, he kind of needs the support and approval of that staff. Because he's so unpopular amongst the other inmates. So would he be, like, a prison informant? Is that where they're yeah, going with informant? Yeah. Like, he's probably, in order to get that attention from the other staff, is probably informing. Right, on... and he's doing it from, like, a protective standpoint of, like, because of who I am and the things that I've done they don't accept me, and actually I'm in danger, so I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get good with the staff. Right, like it's doing what he needs to do to survive in the prison. So there's the prison patient, who's kind of similar to the informer, but placed him in prison and needs psychiatric support. So he'd be, and we're using he, obviously women are in prison too, but I think this study was in a male prison. Correct, yeah. Since the use of he... He's receptive to the attitudes of the staff. He might be a bit too promising, so I think a little bit too, like, things are going to be great, maybe not actually, like, seeming like he's going to get better, but maybe not. The kind of inmates, the attitude would change from being considered deviant to being tolerated or possibly approved, depending on the nature. I mean, this is a pretty early study. It's, I'll talk about later. There are a lot of mentally ill people in prisons who need extra support. So I think that'd be a more and more popular role where, like, they need support. So they are a bit closer with the staff, not necessarily because the prisoners don't approve, but because they genuinely need a lot of support. Right. And I feel like that this person 
or example of a person like is that person right where they need a lot of just like guidance and support because they really are struggling with Mm -hmm. mental health issues yeah definitely there's the inmate representative who's the most trustworthy (laughs) seeming of the inmates that acts as the official kind of spokesperson in any dealing with the staff so likes both the staff and the other inmates mm-hmm. you'll see that a lot if you're watching prison movies oh where yeah there's like one that the staff like more so if the inmates need something they will always send that person to like take care of it yeah there's the ooh, career criminal uh-huh. yeah He's so juicy crime is their profession and prison's just an occupational risk right They usually, they are part of a criminal network of some sort. They might use their time in prison to network for it, so they might get some people in prison to collaborate with them outside of prison. And the involvement in the outside world may lead him to opt out of active participation of inmate groups. So you'll also kind of, with the career criminals, again, they knew... There was a decent chance Mm -hmm. they would end up there. But usually there is support from within the criminal organization within prison. There might be other people who are involved in there. There's people outside who you might still be collaborating with. So they do tend to have pretty strong connections to the outside world because that was so much of their life. So there's not... Right. And their whole, you know, inside the prison world may be kind of you know, who they actually connect with may be dictated by the outside of, like, no, you can't hang out with that group of people because mm-hmm. they are they did something to our guy or whatever. Yeah, definitely. The inadequate recidivist. These are some interesting titles. Right. I think now if they did the study today, they would have to change some of this. Um, so typically a habitual petty thief who lacks social ties to the outside or real alternatives to life um, kind of tolerated but considered as inferior. So this is kind of somebody who has so few ties to the outside that they're probably just going to keep coming Right, like back. this is just kind of a lifestyle for them. Yeah, like they really are the people who have a very difficult time reacclimating and functioning in society, so they're typically just going to keep ending up in back prison. in Berlin. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how to pronounce that. I think it's penitent. Penitent. Um, so these are the people who really see prison as the atonement from the crime they probably feel bad about what they did oh like penance yeah like okay um and they'll kind of take on staff standards so these are they're gonna act really well in prison they will follow the rules they will act more like staff they are people who actively do not want to get worse than they were before so they will be kind of a loner they don't want to join any prison gangs they don't want to get overly involved because they typically think they deserve to be there for what they did so they're trying to make up for it okay two more the situational adaptive who's a conformer who tries to not be too involved the main involvement is with outside groups so i think that's somebody who just kind of they'll get by Mm -hmm. they'll do what they need to do but they're not overly involved And then there's the non-participant who's strong and self-sufficient and withdraws from life as far as possible, relying on inner resources and family ties. So that's different than the one seeking penance because it's 
It's not, not sorry. <laughs> I mean, they might be, yeah. but it's not like as a moral, like, I deserve to be here. This is appropriate punishment. It's more of somebody who just has appropriate support to manage it. And it's just more like, I'm going to be in here. I'm still going to be close with my family. Yeah. And when it's time to leave, I will leave. And I won't come back. Yeah. Yeah. Nailed it. Thanks, girl. Okay, so I found another article, and it was about um, different types of punishment that you can receive in prison. Um, So obviously, a big one that we've heard of is time in solitary confinement, which I will expand on in a bit. Um, The other name for it is the hold. Removal of accumulated good behavior time. Uh, Transfer to a less desirable prison job. The next one is confiscation of items. Um, So that might be like, oh gosh, what's the word? Commissary. They might Mm -hmm. take it away. Neutral loaf. Transferred to another high security prison. Commissary deduction. Getting charged with a new crime to add to your charges, which would really suck. Yeah, so that I think definitely happens more with really severe things. Like if you kill someone in prison or severely assault someone, you will probably get charged with a new crime. Whereas some of the other ones could be for danger, could be for various other... Just acting out. Yeah, Yeah. things you might do. Okay, so I watched this TED Talk and it was by a woman named Laura Rovner. And she basically had this whole TED Talk explaining what the experience was like in solitary confinement. And I thought it was really interesting because she brought up some facts that when you think about it from like a psychological perspective, like I just, I truly couldn't imagine being in that situation. Mm -hmm. So basically something that she talked about was how, you know, there's no separation from food and bathroom where you think about it, like even in animals, like animals won't even do that Mm -hmm. so like I even you know think about like my pigs and like we can't have like their food bowls anywhere near like their litter box or else they won't eat Mm -hmm. you know I forgot that pigs use litter boxes they do that's so nice it is nice so but yeah so like in terms of like you know humans I can't imagine psychologically like how that would feel to have to eat where I go to the bathroom. Like, Mm. that's pretty, you know. Anyway, they also talk about um, how, like, there's, like, this little strip of area where they have their exercise, and basically, I guess, it's referred to as dog runs because, like, you just kind of, like, walk back and forth, so you're not really getting adequate exercise. Another thing she talks about um, is eyesight deterioration that happens in solitary confinement that I never even thought about. Mm -hmm. She also described that a lot of times because there's so much like lack of stimuli, these folks will like look under the door and just look at feet passing by just to get some sort of connection with other humans, which is really sad. Another thing that happens I didn't even think about was that their vocal cords are out of practice. So sometimes they literally have to train themselves to talk again. Unless you talk to yourself the whole time. True. Which I think some people do. They will talk to themselves for hours on end. I probably would. Yeah, I probably would too. I probably sing a lot. Yep. (laughs) Just like, I don't know. (laughs) It would be a really sad existence. It really, it's really, really awful. 
So another thing she brought up that is so true is that identity is socially created. We understand ourselves through our relationships with other people. And when we don't have other people to check in with, we lose our sense of self. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something really important to keep in mind, especially if this is a prisoner where the goal is to have them eventually rejoin with society. It's like, how can you expect them to do that? when they've spent so much time without that feedback from other people. Absolutely. And the thing is, like, I just came across this in some of my research, too, is that solitary confinement isn't always a punishment. There's supermax prisons in which everyone's in solitary confinement the whole time for 23 hours a day. They get out for one hour a day in supermax. So, like, this is something that isn't just, like, oh, you, you know, assaulted another prisoner. We're putting you in solitary for a couple days. This is how some prisoners in the States are living 23 hours a day for their whole sentence. Which is, oh my God, I can't, yeah. Anyway, so then um, another thing she brought up is a lot of times these folks will start acting out just to know they exist just to get that feedback from like the guards or whoever just to be like hey like don't do that okay I I still exist like I'm still a person Mm -hmm. I guess the law indicates that you should be in there no more than 15 days but some people have been in it for 30 years yeah so Again, I think technically, like, Supermax isn't solitary confinement because they get out for an hour a day. But it's still, like, largely similar, right? Absolutely. Like, that's the only difference. Like, one hour a day of socializing in fresh air is not all that much. And I also wonder when they do get the exercise, if they are by themselves... Or if they get the chance to socialize with other people. Yeah, I genuinely don't know. We can ask that. Yeah. We can ask that question. So, okay. So I did some more research about specific ter- specifically <laughs> solitary confinement. So um, I found this really awesome PBS article. Shout out PBS. PBS. Um, and they explained what happens and what solitary confinement can do to your mind. So in one study from the 1950s, um, the University of Wisconsin actually had this study with a psychologist named Harry Harlow, where he placed monkeys inside a custom-designed solitary chamber nicknamed the Pit of Despair, which is, like, really goth. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So it was shaped like an inverted pyramid, and the chamber had slippery slides that made climbing out all but impossible. Oh, wow. Yeah. So after a day or two, Harlow wrote, most subjects typically assume a hunched position in the corner of the bottom of the apparatus. One might presume at this point they find their situation to be hopeless. Harlow also found that monkeys kept in isolation wound up profoundly disturbed, given given to staring blankly and rocking in place for long periods, circling their cages, repetitively and mutilating themselves these are just monkeys great um most readjusted eventually but not those that had been caged the longest 12 months of isolation almost obliterated the animals socially so something to keep in mind there in 1951 Researchers at McGill University paid a group of male graduate students to stay in small chambers equipped with only a bed for an experiment on sensory deprivation. 
Um, and they could leave to use the bathroom, but that was the only caveat. They wore goggles and earphones to limit their sight, their sense of sight, hearing, and gloves to limit their sense of touch. Oh my god, that sounds awful. Um, the plan was to observe the students for six weeks, but not one lasted more than seven days. Nearly every student lost ability to think clearly about anything for any length of time. While several others began to suffer hallucinations. So, for example, one guy was saying he could see nothing but dogs. Okay. So, I mean, kind of horrifying. All right. Another um, researcher named Stuart Grassian concluded that solitary confinement can cause a specific psychiatric syndrome characterized by hallucinations, panic attacks, overt paranoia, diminished impulse control, hypersensitivity to external stimuli, and difficulties with thinking, concentrating, and memory. So if you like look at those just specific um, symptoms, like imagine putting that person back out into society where they hallucinate, they're having panic attacks, they have paranoia, hypersensitivity to external external stimuli like when i think about that that's like a lot of the same characteristics as schizophrenic people Mm -hmm. and look at how well they manage in society Mm -hmm. you know so one of the most remarkable effects of chronic social isolation in extreme cases of solitary confinement is there is a decrease in the size of the hippocampus yeah the brain the brain region related to learning memory and spatial awareness so the sustained stress of extreme isolation leads to a loss of hippocampal plasticity or the ability to, you know, learn, have spatial awareness, stuff like that. A decrease in the formation of new neurons and the eventual failing in the hippocampal function. On the other hand, the amygdala increases its activity in response to isolation. So this area mediates fear and anxiety symptoms enhanced in the prisoners in solitary confinement so that part of the brain is getting bigger so they are more hyper aroused and they experience more fear and anxiety than the typical person so really just sets them up for success for success out in the real world yep and i'll talk about that more in a minute but first let me tell you about a different Okay. People in prison get, and this is really, really interesting because it's very controversial. Some states have outlawed it, some have not. But this is something called Nutriloaf. Have you heard of Nutriloaf? I have not, no. So, Nutriloaf is not necessarily just one thing. I can break down what some different states are. I watched YouTube videos of them actually making it and trying it. So Nutriloaf is a very bland food substitute given to prisoners as punishment. So one of the few things that you get in prison is food, right? You're still allowed to eat. You're still provided with food. Sure. And Nutriloaf is technically nutritious. It meets all of the the nutritional guidelines that the prison has to meet to feed someone. So they have rules to feed people. They have to feed people like enough food to live on and get the nutrients that they need without deficiencies and stuff like that, right? But when a prisoner is given Nutriloaf, they are given Nutriloaf for all three meals. Sometimes I read an article guy for up to five weeks. 
technically, I don't think you're allowed to, but one guy said he did get it for five weeks. He was the longest person to, like, get it. I think the state was Delaware. I forget which wow. one. Wow. For, for five weeks. So, basically, you know, humans have evolved. We like to eat different food. We like variety. It's really, really good for us. And, like, giving prisoners neutral love, it takes away any pleasure that they get from food it takes away any enjoyment and a lot of them just stop eating oh boy if they it to a long time so a couple things like what neutraloaf is depends on the state but overall they're basically not giving utensils with it so they have to eat it with their hands like so they, animals like animals mm-hmm so they just get it like on a paper and it is bland and unappetizing and there's no seasoning whatsoever. So in Ohio, what they do is they take all of the leftover food that you would be required to eat, like if you have like orange juice and milk and a cookie and this and this, they'll just blend it all together and bake it into one loaf. Oh, boy. So it is technically what other people are eating, but it's blended and baked into a bar form. I'm sure that's gross. Yes. And you're not given, like, salt or pepper or anything. You're not allowed to anything. In Illinois, it's a type of meatloaf that they make with almost no seasoning. Like, there's no salt in it. So it's, like, Ugh. in Illinois, it's a specific thing mm-hmm. that they have a recipe for i've heard it's the woman ate it and she said it's not actually that bad but it needs like ketchup and utensils and flavor so it's just very very bland and i read some people say that they can't eat neutraloaf without vomiting I because mean, it's so I understand. nothing yeah right and so in the beginning of 2012 there were 22 lawsuits about the use of Neutraloaf. Um, so in the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, it specifically states that cruel and unusual punishment cannot be inflicted on prisoners. Right. So they are filing lawsuits saying that it's unconstitutional to give people Neutraloaf as cruel and unusual punishment because oh. it has such a strong impact on them and a lot of them are refusing to eat the one guy who had to do it for five weeks straight said he lost 60 pounds in that time because he was Holy refusing to eat. i don't know if that's true like i don't know if they actually weighed him or what but he lost weight he refused to eat he was really really sick Jeez. Um, but it technically meets the qualities so there is legal precedent in the 70s the supreme court ruled out that a potato paste that they gave in prison called Gru had to be outlawed under the Eighth Amendment. So they actually have gotten certain food things brought in. Removed, yeah. Removed. So prisoners are trying. So far, they haven't. um, It's still a thing. More and more states are outlawing it. But basically, it, it depends. So sometimes they'll say that it's a safety issue and... That's why they're not given silverware or utensils to eat it. Like, because the prisoners have acted out it's a safety thing, so they have to give them something that they can eat without utensils, and that's where Nutrilove comes in. Okay. So, um, some people said that, um, you know, the loaf is given to unruly inmates for misbehavior involving food or bodily waste. Ew. But it is on the decline, um... 
Some prison officials maintain it's not meant as punishment. They use it as a behavior management tool, which I find hilarious because it is punishment, like 100%. Right. It's, you know, it's actually, I mean, it is... You're literally removing... removing their food. (laughs) Like, it is by definition punishment. Yeah. Um, But I like that they're like, it's a behavior management tool used in response to disruptive conduct that threatens the safety of prison operations. There's other ones gotta say yeah there's other means to do that there are other means to do that um you know in new york the new york department of corrections eliminated they called it a special management meal for that so they got rid of it as part of a settlement with the aclu about prison conditions and pennsylvania replaced the loaf with bagged meals um and maryland is working on removing it so, Nutri-Loaf is highly controversial right now, whether or not it's cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, it's like the one thing they have. Right. I think it's pretty bullshit. Like, <coughs> Well, especially like in situations where, you know, this isn't somebody who has like life in prison, but like we're expecting them to eventually like, you know, complete their sentence and then come reintegrate with society. It's like... I don't know, like, how they're going to be capable of doing that, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that brings me to my next topic. Ooh. Which is just general prison controversy. So there might be some people in other countries listening to this and being like, what the fuck is going on in American prisons? And friends, I agree with you. So, basically, from what I could find, in the 1970s, the U.S. prison system really shifted from rehabilitation to punishment. So, our entire system is basically based on a punitive model. So, it is not about rehabilitation. I think juvenile detention centers are more likely to have a rehab focus but ultimately like you know it is all about punishment if you talk to a lot of americans about why people go to prison it'll say because they're bad and they need to be punished like it's very focused on that instead of focusing on helping people change their behavior so they're not a danger to society anymore right and You know, I think a big caveat is a lot of people are in prison in the United States for dumb reasons, right? Like, I get... Especially the marijuana charges, and now it's legalized. Well, although actually, though, Illinois is, I think, the first state to legalize marijuana and start expunging records and releasing people from prison. Yeah, so we are actively... A lot of the money, the tax revenue that they're collecting is now being used to get rid of people's felony marijuana records. So they are making an active step to try... But that's just in Illinois. There are 49 other states. I mean, pop off Illinois. That's awesome. Right. So they're actively trying to work on it because, you know, the war on crimes disproportionately affected minorities... And so there are lots of people in prison for having a small amount of personal use drugs um, and are having long sentences. 
There are, you know, so many things are illegal mm-hmm. that people go to prison for. Oh, yeah. Right? And there's a big difference between a serial killer being in solitary confinement who's constantly expressing that he's going to murder every inmate he can get his hands on. Right. Right? Like, at that point, it's a legitimate safety issue. Right. Versus, like, if somebody was dealing drugs because they had literally no other opportunity to make money and support their family. Like, they're not on the same level. Right, and Nick was telling me that, you know, it's one of those things where sometimes, like, especially with kids, they make really impulsive decisions. And, like, for example, if you spray paint a postal office, like, that's, like, a felony. Mm -hmm. And so stuff like that where it's, like, that can be rehabilitated, easily Easily, (laughs) like i'm not concerned about that um it's a felony to sell drugs any type of drug even like antibiotics like it doesn't have to be like his prescription drugs it's illegal (laughs) i am an antibiotics dealer right but like for example (laughs) right like even just prescription drugs it's illegal to sell them to other people right but it becomes a felony if you do it near a school daycare or nursing home for the elderly so there's things like that where it's like you may have done something that yeah it was illegal and you shouldn't have been doing it but it's not on that level again it's like rehabilitative i think you know a lot of people who have gotten you know arrested for some of these things like spray tagging a post office that's dumb but I guarantee you'll never do it again. Right. Like, you can work with someone on that. You can work with people on things like that. Yeah. But, like, those people are getting this, a lot of this stuff, too. Right. Like, you could, you know, throw a muffin at someone as a joke and then have neutral loaf for two weeks because it's a food-related thing in prison. And it's, like, things like that. So, it used to be that rehabilitation was a key part of the prison policy Prisoners were encouraged to develop occupational skills, resolve their psychological problems, get drug treatment, get anger management, those types of things that might interfere with their reintegration into society. Um, And a lot of people's court sentences mandated treatment for those things. But then we had this cultural shift with the war on drugs and the get tough on crime mentality. And we're still in the tough on crime. We're tough Mm -hmm. on crime. And that, so, you know, the approach now sees punishment as prison's main function. That approach has created explosive growth in the prison population while having at most a modest effect on crime rates. Mm -hmm. So, Lauren, without reading ahead, how many people do you think the U.S. has in prison? And jails. It's prison and jails. 10 million? 10 million. It looks like more than 2 million. Okay. Right? Which is still a lot. And another 4 to 5 million people on probation or parole. It's a higher percentage of the population is involved in the criminal justice system in the U.S. than in any other developed country. Yeah. So we have super high rates of people in prison, staying in prison. Um, between 15 and 20 people in prison are mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And there are not enough 
mental health workers in prisons. And so a lot of times the function is becoming more about basic mental health services, not crime rehabilitation. So they're so overworked that they can't even like address the issues right. to help people get back out into society. Um, so not only do we have a very high rate of people in prison. And I've heard tons of different numbers. I don't know if we necessarily know right now. Sure. But we are consistently rated higher than any other developed country. We also have the highest recidivism rate. Uh-oh. Which means people going back to prison after they leave, 76% of prisoners will end up in back in prison. That blows. Right? So the lowest is Norway, which is just 20%. And... You know, the interesting thing is that the U.S. is not even close to the top of the list of countries with the highest rates of violent crimes. Really? Right? Like, the Honduras, Venezuela, Belize, and Guatemala have much higher levels of violent crime than the states do, but we incarcerate the most citizens and then see the majority of those inmates reoffend. And so this is, like, I think the really tricky thing, and I think the really problematic thing, is whether or not you personally believe that people go to prison for punishment, or if you think rehabilitation is possible. I think looking at statistics, 76% of people returning to prison is such a clear indication that what we are doing is not working. It's not working. It's not working. It's not helping people. And I would think the goal should be to make society safer. Absolutely. Right? It's not making anything safer Mm -mm. than it is. And we're having such a little impact. So all of these people who are going into prisons, basically, you know, in other prisons, I think in Norway, which has the lowest recidivism rate, if you look at prison in Norway, there are lots of counselors. There's lots of rehab. It's basically a dorm. So people have their own private bathrooms. They don't have to, like, poop where everyone can see them. Okay. Which is a big thing in prison cells. If you look, a lot of times they might have their own toilet, but, like, everybody can see them. It's not like oh you have God. no privacy, right? Yeah. So they have more privacy. They have televisions. They have internet access. They have groups. A lot of them um, have kitchens on their floors and they're able to cook their own food. They wow. have employment training. They have lots and lots of things where the focus is on healing and on getting people to a point where they can safely re-enter society without committing crimes again. And... Especially for a lot of these low-level criminals who maybe shouldn't even be in prison in the first place, right? right? Like, if you think, you know, especially, like, those young kids, like, let's say that the kid in your scenario who tagged a post office is 18 by the time he's sentenced. He's going to adult prison right now, like... And leaves with no skills whatsoever. Right. Doesn't know how to cook. <laughs> like Doesn't you know. know how to do anything. Now he's been in prison. It's a felony. So he's been in prison for a couple of years living like this and is now supposed to go out at, say, 22 years old. Right. And function in society. He's a felon, so he can't get a job. It's really difficult to get a job as a felon. He hasn't learned a lot of life skills. He really never addressed the behavior that got him in there in the first place. And chances are he's leaving angry at society for putting him in prison. 
for tagging the post office. Right. So it's like those sorts of things that happen, and unfortunately they happen a lot. And so you can see, you know, and we're not trying to argue whether or not people no. should go to prison. We're not trying to argue, like... And obviously it's, it's very different in situations, right, where, like, like a serial killer or something, you know what I mean? Like, they should definitely have you know, different treatment than a a child who tags a building. Right, absolutely. Like, they're, but, uh, you know, other than putting people in supermax or on death's row, there's not, like, I mean, there are different types of prisons. There's minimum security. There's maximum security. But a lot of stuff is still similar. And, I mean, some prisons, there are educational opportunities. Some people get degrees. Some people have prison jobs. Like, there is some uh, people who work jobs in prison, make, like, 17 cents a day to work. So they don't get minimum wage or anything. They get a very small amount of money to do jobs for society. Which is also a huge issue that I'm not going to get into right now. But there's a lot of problematic things. But a lot of times you'll see, and I will talk about this on my next topic. I just got one more topic today. Uh, I just decided to talk about a couple of things instead of like go more in depth into one thing. But if you look at it, a lot of times the educational and therapeutic opportunities are the first thing that gets cut. Yeah. If they need to cut costs, it's all of the things that would help someone get a degree, get a job, do something for themselves could get cut. So it's obviously different in every prison. And I'm sure people who have worked there can elaborate on certain things. And I'm sure some are much better than others. This is just the research that I found. And, you know, just to kind of go back to recidivism, recidivism for a second I think there is kind of that thing that happens where you know for some folks like being in jail is kind of like all they know so it becomes this thing where there's more of like a comfort Mm -hmm. of being in prison than in the outside world um so so now one last thing and this is one of the most controversial things about the United States prison system is for-profit prisons. Da, da, da. Um, so they first emerged in the 80s in response to mass incarceration created by tough-on-crime policies. So again, the war on drugs, tough-on-crime. The states don't have enough prisons, so we start hiring other people to have prisons for us. There was overcrowding, so private businesses seized the opportunity, built their own facilities, and housed the incarcerated. Um, The the world's first modern for-profit prison company, Corrections Corporation of America, which is now CoreCivic, was established in 1983. So basically how that works is they build their own prisons, they have their own policies, and they make money from government contracts that set a cost per inmate that taxpayers pay the company. Hmm. Um, In return, the facility agreed to provide incarcerated people with the mandatory ration of food, clothing, health care, and other living needs. Got it. So, states like it, because, let's say, Anna Gunderson, who's a Louisiana State University political science professor, says, what's driving a lot of the private prison system is not so much the need, although that's certainly part of it, but also the desire to sort of make sure that it that if something bad happens within private facilities, the company is blamed and not the state government. Oh, I Because see. it's on them what okay. happens. Um, 
And then what they're saying is that that's exactly why they're a problem because these businesses, which unlike any other are look or which like any other are looking to make a profit, work to increase profit margins by cutting corners. That's the big activist argument. Yeah. Um, so that in the quality of staff, there are fewer correctional officers trained less than in public prisons. There were low pay rates leading to frequent turnover and a lack of experienced officers directly impacting the inmates' quality of life. So there's a lot of activism against for-profit prisons mm-hmm. right now, and it's really interesting because if you look at it, 22 states have outlawed really for-profit prisons. Okay. Um, so it is really, really controversial, and you know I'm sure I could do tons more research and talk about all of this for weeks on end because sure. it's such a big thing. But from everything I've read, a lot of people are saying that it is not good. People who worked in for-profit prisons and then went to public prisons or, like, government prisons said that the government prisons had, like, nicer toilet paper. They had more space. There were guards everywhere. There were things happening. And there have been some instances. This article, um, which is by Vox, talks about... A situation where there was a fire in an inmate cell and there was only one guard on the entire thing who didn't let him out because there oh. was no one else to help them. So from what I understand, it almost seems like the for-profit prisons are more dangerous. Yes. Huh. That's kind of what I've heard. Again, I am by no means an expert. This is like the Why? research that I found. <laughs> but because they're corporations trying to make a profit... They have to, they're cutting corners. They're cutting corners because oh. they make a certain amount from the taxpayers per inmate. Um, some people also argue that that is keeping people from getting released from prison and getting paroled at early parole when they could be because the company is profiting off of them being there. Mm-hmm. And they some people believe that for-profit prisons is also partially responsible for the high rates. Interesting. In the United States. Very interesting. Interesting stuff here. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, if you look at that, like, we have some inhumane punishments that are used in prison, as well as a really high recidivism rate and a really high rate of people coming into prisons in the first place. So, pretty much right now, and there some places, from what I've heard, are making really good strides towards making it more humane and more mm-hmm. rehabilitation focused. So, I don't want to say that there aren't better prisons out there. I've heard of a few where people can earn like master's degrees in prison. Mm-hmm. People can earn different life skills. It does happen, mm-hmm. but I don't know if that's the norm. Right. And I think looking at our recidivism rate alone, like obviously, there needs to be changes. Totally. I just had an idea, and if you don't agree with it, we can cut it out. Okay. (laughs) But I was wondering if, like, we have listeners, like, who they themselves or had a family member spend time in prison, if they would let us interview them. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear. Or if you want to just send us, like, a little blurb. Yeah, that works too. That would be cool if you want to interview or just want to send an anonymous message about... Your experience. About your experience or your family's member's experience. That'd be cool. Yeah. Especially like the, you know, how you feel like it psychologically impacted you and what, I don't know, like what it was like acclimating to prison or even acclimating coming out of prison. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think we all would be super interested in hearing about that. Yeah, definitely. So, so it'd be interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, we will definitely talk about this more. Yeah. On our interview. Yeah, this isn't episode. all of it. Like No, this is by no means all of it. Um, we just wanted to kind of dip the toe into it and talk about a few different things. Because really, we could do a lot with this. This could be like a whole season. Yeah. <laughs> this season of Spooky Psychology. Clink, clink, clink. <laughs> we'll try to find some clink, clink, clinking noises to really add something to this. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, let us know if you have questions. Mm-hmm. Spooky Psychology St. Charles Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is not like a th- we're done with this topic. This is just where we're stopping with this episode, part two. Which it's coming. On April 3rd. Yep. We'll have some more information. So, message us if you've ever been in prison or your family member's ever been in prison and you want to talk to us or if you just want to send us a blurb about what it was like please do that or if you have questions for for people who've worked there or for prisoners yeah yeah that would be really awesome and then um yeah our instagrams so mine is lauren l-u-r-e-n underscore malika m-o-l-l-i-c-a l-m-f-t at instagram Mine is Megan Baker LCSW, or is it Megan Q Baker LCSW? Ooh, I'm gonna check. I think it might be Q. It might. No, just Megan okay. Baker LCSW on my Instagram. So you can hit us up there, um, or Facebook, like Megan said. Mm-hmm. Um, so to close for today, any good shit? I meant to look it up this morning before I left. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't either. I didn't. It's going to take me a hot second. Um, I think the generosity of my friends and family. Aww. That is good shit. Right everyone's been really great. I love that. Um, hang on. I feel like I had one that was really good where I was like, oh, I love this. Um, 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 um. While you think my... Very soon to be mother in law and father in law got us a very fancy coffee maker mm. as a wedding shower gift. And this morning I made an iced, like, vanilla honey latte and it was so good. So that's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, truly, coffee. coffee. Once again, coffee exists and I'm very happy about it. I am pleased. Um, oh, I guess good shit. I just want to give a huge shout out because I feel like people don't know this exists, but it's out there um, to victim advocates um, in hospitals. Mm, so yes. um, they are awesome. They are people who freely go to the hospital and help people who have just been sexually assaulted through their process of getting a rape kit completed and mm-hmm. they're talking mostly to the volunteers too, yep, not getting paid doing this at like 2 a.m. Yep. And they are awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so huge shout out to them. They're doing good shit in the world. And also, we're just going to uh, also throw out uh, <clears throat> victim witness advocates in yep. courthouses that worked with people throughout the court process um, and also police social workers who work yep. with victims as well. Absolutely. We appreciate you guys. You're doing the good work out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, well, thank you guys for listening in. Send us your questions and thanks for getting spooky. Thanks for getting spooky. Bye.